Well, the moment has arrived. I don't know uh, whether you've caught it yet, but the very first verse in the Bible makes reference to Jesus. And I'm talking about the Old Testament. As I was explaining to a Jehovah Witness yesterday, by the third chapter of the Old Testament, not by name, but his role and what he will achieve is mentioned explicitly. And then he's pointed to, anticipated, right through and on almost every page of the Old Testament. And I hope you've seen that it really is all about Jesus. The Exodus was about Jesus. And the Promised Land was about Jesus. And the Tabernacle was about Jesus. And the Temple and the Sacrifices was about Jesus. And the priests and the kings and the prophets were all about Jesus. And over 300 prophecies of his life in the Old Testament will be fulfilled in the next few years of his life. Every word that was spoken, every sign that was made, every nudge, every wink of the Old Testament is about to come alive in the person of Jesus. And so the coming weeks we're going to explore both the life of Jesus and the movement that he started through his life and through his mission. And uh, we're going to do that in the same kind of manner that we've been traveling through the Bible. Uh, The story going from event to event or in the life of Jesus. In fact, we're going to go year by year. If you didn't pick up one of these on the way in, there are some on the left as you uh, leave, which has got the themes and uh, the details that will take us right through to December. And you'll see that over these coming weeks, we're going to kind of focus in, zoom in on Jesus. We're going to hover over the story, spending a bit more time than, than the way we've done the Old Testament, where perhaps we've covered a uh, hundred years or more in one morning. We're going to cover just a year at a time and look at the way it is. So this morning, we're going to think about the coming of Jesus. I'm going to paint a broad uh, canvas picture about that. What does his coming say about God and what does his coming say about us? And then next week, we'll look briefly at those years of obscurity as they're known, when very little is recorded of what Jesus did other than he grew in wisdom and maturity, he grew in strength, he got lost in the temple, uh, and apart from that, not much else is known. Then we'll begin the first of his three years of ministry, the year of inauguration. And the following week, we'll look at the year of popularity. And then the the following week, we'll look at the year of opposition when things got really intense and heavy. And then we'll slow right down to those final days, those final hours even. And then we'll finish this hovering over Jesus with new beginnings. And we'll see how his death wasn't the end, but launched something new for Jesus in person but launched something quite remarkable for the movement that he had begun during his life. So that's the plan. Uh, it'll take us, that'll take us through to about uh, half term, and then we'll uh, look at the way the church bursts into life for the remainder of this year, taking us right up to Christmas. Okay, is that okay with you? Because I'm going to kind of do it now, because I planned it, whether even if it's, it's not, you know. Best will in the world and stuff. Like to be flexible, you know. Customer's always right. 
but we're going to have a go at this, all right? And uh, uh, just by the way, if, if you're fascinated by some of the things that I'm saying about Jesus, a couple of years ago, it might even be three or four years ago now, uh, we did a whole series, I think it was 14 sermons on Jesus, different aspects of, of his life, uh, just Jesus. Uh, there'll be a link to it somewhere down the right-hand side of, the, of, the, um, of the, the website there. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we're asking that you would help me and help us to see the real Jesus. I am more aware of how conditioned I am about Jesus because of the way I've been brought up, because of the stories that were emphasized when I was growing up, because of the kind of church I was in whilst I was growing up. And that's true for probably many of us. Help me to see Jesus more clearly. Help me not to impose my initial impression on the story. Help me not to read into the story things that I have assumed or taken to be the way it is without checking and rechecking and asking your Holy Spirit to open my eyes and to cleanse my heart. Lord, help us to see Jesus because we desperately need to see him. Amen. Amen. It's all very quiet. You're scaring me. This morning is very... Because normally you're raucous, right? This morning is very simple. And the simplicity, in a sense, masks the level of the challenge. I just want to use three phrases, three verses in the whole of the Gospels that paint something of the big picture of the life of Jesus. And as I paint this big picture about the life of Jesus, I want to ask myself and each one of us a question that lies behind this picture of Jesus that I will try to paint. You see, since Jesus, his movement spread all over the world, true? And we're part of it. We call it the church. But whatever else the church is, the church is the Jesus movement. Essentially, we are Jesus people. We love Jesus, we serve Jesus, we seek to follow Jesus, we live for Jesus. Yeah. The early church put it this way. In just three words, they made this incredible statement that was to define the whole agenda. They would use three words that would define every sub-agenda of the whole agenda. Three words that would completely orientate the movement, that would ring-fence always their true community. Three words that defined everything. Jesus is Lord. We worship Jesus, we love Jesus, we serve Jesus, we live for Jesus. It's all for Jesus because Jesus is Lord. We're that movement, aren't we? 
We are that Jesus movement. Those people who said, we want to live for him, we want to serve him, we want to honour him, we want our lives to reflect him, we want to build a community that adores him and lives for him and brings the kind of change that he longs to see. What if we discovered that we weren't as like Jesus as we thought? Would we be willing to change everything if that's what it took in order to be like Jesus? Or are there some things that have become more important to us than Jesus being the Lord? We might say that he's Lord, and indeed we'll sing that he is Lord, uh, and yet my life, and yours too, and our church sometimes betrays a different story. So three verses, three things that paint the big picture about Jesus, so that we can ask the question, is the big story of Jesus' life the same as ours? Because that's what we'd expect, wouldn't we? Or at least, that's what the goal should be. You're almost as nervous as me. You ready? Here we go. A few years after Jesus' death and resurrection, they used the word Christians, ones of Christ. They didn't plan that. It kind of just grew up in their midst because people didn't quite know how to describe them. They're the Christ ones. They're the Christians. They're the ones like Jesus. It's his people. It's his movement. Here we go. Phrase one. The Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. Son of Man is a reference to Jesus. And it's used many times in the New Testament. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Jesus was radically orientated towards lost people. Which, if Jesus be our Lord, and we be his movement, then Jesus' people are radically orientated towards the lost. You see, he was so radically committed to lost people that he left his place of comfort and security. So radically committed to lost people that he gave up his rights, his prestige, his status, his wealth, his power. Theologians have called it his self-emptying. He gave everything up, even his life, for the sake of lost people. Charles Wesley in that great hymn, And Can It Be, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. So radically committed to lost people that he would sacrifice his energy, his time, his comfort, his life, his everything. So how can the church that bears his name sometimes be so, well, comfortable, so safe, so risk-adverse, 
So self-seeking, some might say. So self-indulgent. It's the big picture of our church that we are radically committed to lost people, that we'd give up everything, that we'd sacrifice everything, lay aside it all to reach more people that are lost. And is that the picture, the big picture of your life today? What is the biggest evidence in your life, in my life, that you're radically orientated towards lost people? What have you done, what have I done in the last month that would show, that shows that I'm passionate about winning lost people for Jesus. As a church, we spend the overwhelming majority of our time on things for us. Making it better for us, making it work for us, organizing ourselves in our own best interest. And staggeringly, churches like ours, all over the country, take on a momentum of their own. And we can carry on with almost no regard for our raison d'etre, our reason to be. Our rhetoric, the things that we say, might display that we think that we're passionately uh, orientated towards lost people, or the things that we say will suggest that we want to be. But maybe our actions portray a different story. We're in a global recession. You knew that, didn't you? Uh, many of you are struggling in the with the pressures of it. Businesses have been going to the wall. Last week, we spent a few days at Wells next to the sea, and there on the front. Half of those small businesses had gone under since we were last there. Did they go under without a fight? I doubt it. I doubt it. You see, all over the world, small businesses and global corporations are holding emergency meetings. They're making radical decisions. They're they're calling in advisors and consultants. They're looking at old issues in new ways, desperate, trying anything to keep the profit margin at a rate sustainable what? To survive. The church has been running at a profitability rate way less than survival for decades. By and large, there have been no emergency meetings. By and large, no radical decisions. By and large, no creative innovation, looking at old issues in new ways. By and large, we've just carried on. Apart from slightly different music and a few skirmishes with technology and the fact we don't wear ties as much anymore, has much changed in 30 years, 100 years. Now zero in on us for a minute, Burlington, just for a moment. You see, we're Jesus people, aren't we? You're not quite as sure as you were five minutes ago. We're Jesus people. People called to live and love and serve the Jesus who was radically reorientated orientated towards the lost. Now forgive me if I've overlooked somebody. And for sure, the people that will be baptized in a fortnight's time have grown into faith over this last year. But I'm not aware of anyone coming to Christ this year. 
And that's worrying enough. But maybe what's more worrying is that no one's mentioned it. And there have been no emergency meetings. No one has suggested some desperate action. No no one's urged us to radically rethink, to reshape. Let's do something, even if it's drastic. You can be fairly certain that for most businesses who've just carried on, something obvious will happen to them. The similarities are poignant. Now, please, please understand me. Please understand me. I am painfully aware, painfully aware, as God works in me, that there is much about my life that is not yet radically orientated towards lost people. I'm all too quick to foster my own comfort and security. I'm all too risk Adverse. I naturally foster a community of the safe and the separate. There, there is much that I have and am and will need to repent of. I'm also painfully aware that despite the rhetoric, much of my leadership here is in danger of fostering our own inertia. We're in danger of pampering. I'm in danger of pampering to our own consumer agenda. And there's much, to be honest, that I feel I need to repent of as leader of this church. Not because it was all wrong. It's not all wrong, not at all. But in this regard, we have perpetuated the status quo I have perpetuated the status quo far too readily. And to be honest, I'm deeply disturbed by the way that I am, as God works in me. I'm deeply disturbed by the way we are, as God works in us. As someone who's got it wrong way more than got it right. Together, I believe we need to look long and hard at where we've lost touch with what Jesus' people should be about. People will give up, change, experiment, innovate, sacrifice, lay everything aside for the winning of lost people. And yet for me, and I'm sure for you, there are things in our hearts that until God works there, we're not ready to give up. Maybe even things about our church life together that we'd struggle to let go of for the sake of lost people. So the Son of Man came to seek and save what was lost. And I'm deeply troubled by that. Deeply troubled. Secondly, even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' attitude to serving was astonishing, wasn't it? Uh, Claire read 
for us earlier on from Philippians 2. Your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, being made in human likeness, in appearance as a man, humbled himself even to death, death on a, on a cross. Would you just turn to that with me in your Bibles? Grab a Bible, Philippians 2. Uh, and it's, uh, I just want to highlight something that, that struck me afresh just this week. Someone's got it. Can they just shout the page number for us? Sorry? 1179. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Verse 5 who being in very nature God, verse 6, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. If God had simply become a man, how utterly incredible would that have been? Imagine for a moment the creator becoming one of the created. Someone outside time suddenly becoming constrained by our chronology. Someone beyond space suddenly becoming confined to a womb and a body with arms and limbs. Someone being uh, forced to only be able to relate in our kind of interpersonal relationships and constraints. That itself would be utterly amazing. But there's this phrase in verse 7 that defines it even more. In verse 7. But made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. And you'll notice that there's a little B, nature, because there's a footnote at the bottom, verse 7, or the form of a servant. So, so, here Paul is saying, and this is probably one of the oldest pieces of writing that we have. Probably one of the earliest things that was written down about Jesus. It was probably a hymn or a poem, maybe. And Paul puts it in here. It's the amazing thing about this God becoming man is that when he became man, he chose to take on the nature, the role of a servant. Why God can only be true to himself because it is God's nature to serve, to give of himself. That's why he was born to a peasant and not a princess. That's why he was born in a stable and not a stately home. It's why he spoke with a country accent that made him sound really silly when he got into the educated city. It's why his appearance was less than average. Why we see him staying up late to meet the needs of the crowds. Why we see him pushing on to another village because everybody needed to hear him. Why he allowed power to leave him. It's why we see him as the most unlikely candidate with a towel around his waist and a bowl in his hand. If that's the big picture of Jesus, then Jesus' people are radically orientated towards serving. And we exhibit loads of service in and around our community. And there are many, many ways We honour and love Jesus by the way that we serve one another, by the way that we bless one another, by the way that we look out for one another. But then that verse from Mark troubled me 
He came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus' servanthood was not for his friends or for the church. There was no church. Not for the faithful or the righteous. Jesus' serving was not for the in-club or the old boys' network, but for the many. For the lost. For those who are far from God, who one day could be friends. And uh, when I think of serving, I, I encourage myself because of all the serving that I do. And then Jesus says, the mark of my life is that you serve the many. And suddenly I see how it links with this whole reaching the lost. And You see, many of us in our teams, in our neighborhoods, in our networks, we're the only Christ one there. Are you the best server in your neighborhood? Are you the best server in your workplace? Are you the one that serves people way down the hierarchy in wherever you find yourself? Are you the one with the worst job willing to take it on? Are you the one with the most menial task, the undesirable, the, the, the serving that will cost you time and energy and emotion and so on? Jesus, he's radically orientated to serving the many. The many. And finally, this one might surprise you. Matthew chapter 11. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Son of Man came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. Up there, with reaching the lost and serving the many. In fact, Jesus was such a serious eater and drinker that his enemies could accuse him of being a glutton, as they did, someone who eats too much, and a drunkard, someone who drinks too much. Now, maybe his enemies exaggerated a little to bring him down. But the Bible itself portrays Jesus as someone who came eating and drinking. Jesus' key moments are often around meals. In fact, Luke's Gospel in particular goes almost from meal to meal. There's even a book called Eating Your Way through Luke's Gospel. So if the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, that was his motivation for mission. And if the Son of Man came to serve and give of himself to the many, that's the manner in which he carried out his mission. And he came eating and drinking, which is has much to say about his method of mission. How did Jesus come? Not on clouds of glory with 10,000 angels. Not with a carefully prepared script either. Or a do- set of doctrinal truths, all of which are necessary. But Jesus came eating and drinking, a, a party animal. He spent much of his time eating and drinking. So could it be that Jesus' people are radically orientated towards eating and drinking? Some of you are going, bring it on. I'm much more at home than I was a few minutes ago. And that's encouraging, isn't it? Because maybe there's something about Jesus that is so normal and so ordinary that it's accessible to all of us. Maybe the despair that I felt a few moments ago, that you felt a few moments ago, that it's all too much, it's all beyond me, suddenly becomes much more real because he just came eating and drinking. And who did he eat and drink with? His family, one assumes. His disciples, yes, of course. But who is he best known 
for eating and drinking with. The sinners and the tax collectors. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with the tax collectors and the sinners? Why? Because they knew what meals were about. In the same way that we know what meals are about. Meals bring people together. Meals hold people together. Meals are places of love and warmth. Meals build friendship and community. Caroline Street wrote a book entitled Hunger City, How Food Shapes Our Lives. She says, few acts are more expressive of companionship than a shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. The meal creates opportunities for connection, for relationship. You see, Jesus came in a highly relational way. It's no accident, is it? But at the end of time, there's a picture of what will happen. And it's a a banquet, a feast. And it's not because God thought, well, it'll have been a long time, the end of time, they'll all be hungry. It's not about consumption. It was a feast that would express companionship, of welcome, of celebration. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing in ordinary ways, in ordinary days. And even the Pharisees understood it. They muttered to themselves, this man welcomed sinners. How did they know he welcomed sinners? Because he ate with them. In fact, he gives them such a welcome that it didn't matter who it was in society, whether it was Simon the Pharisee up here, uh, as their society would have said, or perhaps a prostitute that was down here. So a known prostitute that would probably never come into this gathering here because it didn't matter how hard we tried and we wouldn't want to, it would just ooze a sense of, of shame and condemnation, almost in the stones of the place as much as we'd long it to be different. How come people that wouldn't come in here would go to Jesus and fall at his feet and love him and worship him and do all kinds of weird things with their hair before him? How did he achieve a welcome? It seems way beyond me most of the time, way beyond us. He came eating and drinking. Not exactly what the church has been known for, is it? How often do you share a meal with people beyond your family? Maybe you eat with your small group. I know some small groups do. Some small groups may even have had breakfast this morning before coming here. Fantastic. You probably ought to do that more often. But Jesus did not come eating and drinking with the in crowd, with the old boys network. He came eating and drinking with those outside his circle. Those outsiders group, those who found themselves far from God. I wonder whether a few things will enable us to connect and relate to people more than to start eating and drinking with a few people in the way that Jesus did. It's around the table that people share their hearts, that people share their lives, that the conversations of significance take place. People radically devoted to Jesus regularly have people that are far from God around their table. 
If you live alone, team up with a few others. If you don't think your home is good enough, or you could never cook a meal that would be good enough, you have totally missed the point. It's got nothing to do with those things. And yet sometimes we confess those things are more important to us, aren't they? Don't, don't leave it me like that's just me. That's not, that's, that's not just me, is it? And we put those things above the Jesus' Lord bit when we say, well, I'm not sure my home is good enough or my food is good enough. If, if you invite someone for a meal, I guarantee you they will not base their decision on the size, the decor, or the location of your home. I guarantee they will not base their decision on how good a meal they think you're going to produce. In fact, if your house is a bit of a mess, and if you mess up the food just a little, you will have done them an enormous favour, won't you? Because when they have to invite you back, you see, mess it up when you have people round. It makes it much easier for them to invite you back. And I guarantee, if you invite someone for a meal, whether they end up coming or not, almost 100% of the time, you will have blessed their socks off by the invite. In this lonely world, when no one cares very much, and we pull up the drawbridges of our houses all too quickly, in that single invitation you will probably have expressed more gospel than countless sermons ever will. If the New Testament hadn't used their homes, there would never have been a church. And I wonder if we don't recapture something about homes and other places, whether we'll ever still have a church in the way that we understand it. So I'm feeling quite disturbed, as you can tell. Because, to be honest, the the notion that we call ourselves Christians, the notion that I call myself a Christian, uh, and that I qualify to call myself a Christian because I go to church, and and I've done the discipleship courses that the church has invited, asked, forced me to do, and, and I rock up at most of the events going on at the church, that that makes me like Jesus. And I've got to tell you, you can be a minister and it doesn't make you much like Jesus. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is a danger here, I'm being hugely misunderstood. I'd like you to be just a little bit more affirming, yeah? We could bond here, I'm sharing my heart. Mm, 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 Yeah? Okay? Do do you understand what I'm saying? Really? It's not that we don't want to be like Jesus and we're not trying to be like Jesus. It's just there's there's this gulf. And you see, I'm wondering whether there are some incredibly simple things that might be different to where we put our emphasis that will unlock something that we desperately need. Because it looks okay when the church is full this morning. It's good, isn't it? It's nice. Isn't it nice? It's much better than if it was half empty, isn't it? But, but the trouble with that niceness is it makes me want to cling hold to this which is nice. And I prefer to think about that, to be honest than the fact that hardly anyone's come to Christ. I sleep much better when I think about it being like this. 
Do you understand that? And, and I, I really believe God's got something for us. And it, it, I just want God to awaken our spirit to what Jesus longs to do. And when I read that he came eating and drinking, I think, for heaven's sake, even I can do that. Even I can do that. And we need to walk a journey, walk a journey of empowering each other to do some simple things, perhaps, that Jesus did that might make a world of difference. But that's not easy. That's not easy because I love routine. It's not easy because I don't like change much. That's not easy because I, I would prefer sometimes not to go to the effort of reaching to someone beyond my circle. Wouldn't you? Have you ever been in town and seen someone and walked the other way? I've never done that, but... And all you're saying in that moment is, 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 is not right now. My mind's full. I haven't got the emotional engagement for that. And you know, maybe if we didn't do quite so much stuff, we'd have a bit more emotion for what we need. So I've got loads of questions. Not very many answers. But Jesus is the answer. And if he came eating and drinking... And if he said, well, this week, man, the big deal this week is to serve someone who's outside my circle. Who's it going to be? The big thing this week is to do one thing, to bless someone outside my circle. Who am I going to bless? Then suddenly that becomes in, within my grasp. And I want to give myself to that. Because I don't want his church to go belly up on our watch. Let's pray.